Good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing today? You doing well? It's good to hear all the kids as they scatter to children's worship and to fusion. Um, I want to welcome you to Living Hope, whether you're here in the building or whether you're worshiping online with us. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Alan Pittman. I'm uh, the senior pastor here as well as one of the elders. And I would love the opportunity to get to meet you this morning. And so if we've not had a chance to meet yet, after the service is over with, you should be able to find me out here in the foyer area. Uh, just swing by and say howdy, introduce yourself, and uh, would enjoy that opportunity to get to know you. Uh, another way for us to get to know you, as uh, Ricky mentioned, uh, or I mentioned, I guess I should say, on the video, uh, there is a connection card inside uh, the chair pocket right near you. And we would love for you to fill that out so we can get you some information about the church, answer questions for you, and things like that. One other thing I'd like for you to consider doing, I would encourage all of you uh, to grab that connection card right now. If you're in the building, you can grab one. If you're online, you can get uh, on the Hope and follow it there. Last week, I asked you to fill out prayer requests, and it was great to see all the many things that this church family is praying about. This week, I would like all of us to participate with this, and I would love to hear what God has been doing in your life in and through the ministry of Living Hope over the last six months. So think about your life over the last six months, and how has God used your church family to be a blessing to you, to encourage you, to strengthen your walk with Jesus, and those kinds of things. Just kind of a praise report. I would love for you to take the time today at some point to put that on the back on the prayer request card so that we can uh, celebrate with you and to hear what God is doing in your life. And if you fill out this card with that information, if you have an offering to give today, just know that both of those can be dropped in the offering box on your way out um, at, on the back wall there at the end of the service. One other thing I wanted to mention to you is I talk about what God's been doing in and through our church over the last six months. Uh, some of you are newer to our church. You've been coming the last few weeks, and maybe you're considering, is this the place that God would lead me and my family to? Is this the place where we would join and kind of plug in and be a part of the ministry that's going on here? You have a great opportunity next week. Next week after the service, we'll be having a new member class. After the service, we'll have, um, we'll have a lunch provided for you as well as childcare. But to help us kind of get those together, um, we would love for you to register for the class so we can make plans for that, and you can get on that at The Hope as well. It's just lhbc.net backslash The Hope, and you can find out all the information you need and register for things that are going on. All right, let me take a drink of water because my voice is wanting to kind of flake out on me. We are, this year, walking through the book of Acts. And so as you came in this morning, perhaps you picked up a worship guide. On the back of the worship guide, there's a place to take notes. You can see that we are looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21 today. And it's called Power for Proclamation. And then next week, uh, you'll see at the bottom, we'll be in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 41. If you want to read those verses ahead of time, then you can do that and uh, be ready for next Sunday. All of our service sermons are online, archived, so that if you miss a week, you can kind of go back and check that out. Out, uh, to kind of follow along with us as we walk through the book of Acts. So if you've got a Bible with you, I'd ask you to grab that, turn to Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible in, in a chair or under a chair near you. You can use that. If you don't own a Bible or you need a Bible uh, or somebody in your life needs a Bible, feel free to take that home with you as a gift from us. 
As we get ready to look at Acts chapter 2, I wanted to start this way. Um, I am this season uh, helping to coach uh, one of my, my, my son's uh, track team. And you may look at me and go, Alan, you don't look much like a track star. Well, I'm not, but I am helping to coach that team. And, and we have been working up towards a track meet that's happening in, in, in about a week and a half. And, and track practice is important, and we enjoy that, or at least I do. I don't know if they do or not. But really, it's, it's getting geared up for kind of opening day, if you will. And, and, and as important as the track practice are, the kids are looking forward to the meet because they're anticipating its arrival. Well, in a much bigger way, what we have in Acts chapter 2 is arrival of the big day. And what I mean by that is, as we've looked through Acts chapter 1, we've seen that these disciples, these apostles, these 120 followers of Jesus have been looking for the coming of the Holy Spirit as Jesus promised them. Well, today we get to see that the Holy Spirit arrives and and God is up to something among his people. If you remember from chapter 1, we see that Jesus was, um, uh, it's after his resurrection, and, and then he teaches his disciples for about 40 days, and then he ascends into heaven. And, and during the next 10 days, they are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Well, here's the deal. They didn't mark their calendar. They don't know when the Holy Spirit is coming. They just know that Jesus promise the Spirit was coming. And so every day they're wondering, is this the day? Well, in chapter 2, we find it is the day. Before we get to chapter 2, though, look back with me at Acts chapter 1, verse 4. In verse 4, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and it says, while he was waiting with them, or staying with them, I mean, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, and the promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit. He said, the Holy Spirit is coming. Wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. And then look down in verse 8. In verse 8, he's talking to his disciples as he ascends into heaven and says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So here are the disciples. They've heard the words of Jesus. They know that they're to stay in Jerusalem. They know that they're to wait on the Holy Spirit to arrive. They they know they're to be witnesses for Jesus all over the world, but they know that they're waiting for the power of the Spirit to arrive. And so for 10 days, they are waiting. But to them, it was just another ordinary day. And what I mean by that is they didn't know it was the day. They just knew that it was another day on the calendar. But in this scenario, it's not just an ordinary day. Instead, they're celebrating an event that's called Pentecost. Or another term that's used for it is Festival of Weeks. And Festival of Weeks, or or Pentecost, was one of three what are called compulsory festivals or feasts. There were three festivals among the Jewish people that they knew was a a, a time that they were supposed to, they were required to, they were supposed to go to Jerusalem for a pilgrimage to to be a part of what's happening at the temple. And so those um, those three festivals are Passover, or also referred to as unleavened bread, and then also the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Weeks. So I, I want to show you this, this chart. This kind of shows you the different festivals. I realize in the back of the room you may not see it. We're looking down here at the black print. Up here at the top are the months of the year that are, that are Hebrew months of the year. And, and so we see here in Abib or Nisan, I don't, don't quote me on that, I don't always pronounce it correctly, but the first month of the year we see three key um, festivals, the Passover, And a part of the Passover is the Festival of Unleavened Bread, 
and then a part of that is an offering of first fruits. And it's important for us to kind of understand how these all fit together. You can see Passover is on the 14th day of the month, Festival of Unleavened Bread is on the 15th day of the month, and then the 16th day of the month is the first fruits, and then about uh, after that, about 50 days later, is the Festival of Weeks. So I'm going to be reading from Leviticus chapter 23. You see the verses are there. We're not going to have the verses on the screen because I want the chart to be up there. But listen to the different festivals that are coming. And you're going, why are we looking at this? Because it's going to be important for us to understand the festivals, to understand what takes place on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So if you were to look at Leviticus chapter 23, in verse 5, it's describing the Passover. And it says, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So at the bottom of that, it says the Passover happens on the 14th day. And then when you look down in verse 6, it's going to talk about alongside of the festival of the Passover. It is what's referred to as the festival of unleavened bread. And so it said in verse 6, on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread. So there on the second level, you see the 15th day of the month. Then now in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 10 and 11, it says this. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord. And it says it's on the day after the Sabbath. And so you see up here the offering of first fruits. So we have Passover that would have happened on a, um, on a Thursday. Then we have uh, well, actually a Friday and then a thir uh, Saturday festival of unleavened bread. And then on Sunday would have been the offering of first fruits. So I want you to see how all of those kind of uh, lay out. So let's look down in verse 16. Verse 16 is going to Leviticus chapter 23. It's going to talk about the festival of weeks or Pentecost. It says, then you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. So here's what we have going on. We have the Passover, which is a reminder of what God did for the people of Israel as he rescued them out of Israel, I mean, sorry, out of Egypt, and how the Passover lamb was, was, uh, was killed and then the blood put on the doorpost so that, the, 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 that God would pass over their home. And then the unleavened bread, a reminder of, of, of following God and absence of sin, and then the offering of first fruits as saying, here is our first bit of our harvest that we're offering to you, Lord. So as we think about the final week of Jesus's life, he is crucified on the Passover because he is the Passover lamb. The next day he lay in the tomb on the day of the festival of unleavened bread, which is pointing towards his perfect sacrifice because he is unleavened. He is free from sin. And then the exciting news is that on Easter Sunday morning, he is raised as the first fruits of the resurrected. Perhaps you're familiar with this passage, and we'll put this on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23. This references Jesus' resurrection as the first fruit of resurrections. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. But uh, it says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So, Jesus' resurrection points to the fact that he is the first fruit of many who would be resurrected. So the Resurrection Sunday is not only about Jesus' resurrection, but the power that his resurrection brings when we trust in his name for salvation, that one day you and I will be resurrected as well. And then also, if you'll go back to that, um, to that chart of festivals, you'll see at the bottom here, uh, it talks about the offering of the first fruits. And basically, about 50 days later, they, they, they celebrate the bringing in of the harvest. This festival of weeks, or, or Pentecost, or the Feast of Harvest, is about a harvest that has come. Now, next week, we'll continue in chapter 2, and we'll see that as a result of what takes place in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost is that the gospel is preached and the first harvest comes because at the end of his sermon, at the end of Peter's sermon, we see that 3,000 people are saved, believe in Jesus, and are baptized. So... The importance of this story happening on Pentecost is not uh, just a, an accident. God planned it to point to the harvest that would come when the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed. Now, let's look at Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, let's see what happens. It says this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, talking about all the disciples, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, and here's what they said, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And here are the people that are there. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, <clears throat> and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, and Ara uh, Ara Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, and he addressed them, men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he quotes from the Old Testament, the prophet Joel. Here's what it says. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out on my spirit... I will, sorry, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood 
before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Can you imagine? Can you imagine to be a fly on the wall that day? When the disciples, the apostles, the followers of Jesus are all together in the upper room or wherever they may have been that day, they were all together in one place. And can you imagine the excitement whenever God showed up and shook the house? Can you imagine this was not just some gathering where they were just kind of singing kumbaya. They were, they were worshiping God together, praying together. They were in unity together. They were waiting on the Lord. They were waiting on the Holy Spirit. And boom, he shows up. To be a fly on the wall that day would have been amazing. Much can and much has been and much will be said about that day, but I don't want us to lose sight on why the Holy Spirit came. Why did God send his Holy Spirit? Look back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. It says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. We are given the Holy Spirit in order that we would stand up and be his witness. So on your sermon notes, you'll see this. It says, the gospel is to be proclaimed to all people. We receive the Holy Spirit so that we would proclaim the gospel and that we would proclaim that gospel to all people. That's been God's plan from the very beginning. It began with his covenant with Abraham. I'm going to read uh, Genesis 12, 3 real quick. Whenever God makes a covenant with Abraham, he says, I'm going to bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families, it says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed all along. It's been God's plan that all people would hear the gospel proclaimed. And then in Acts chapter one, verse eight, we see he lists all these areas, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. And then we see that this is beginning to be fulfilled. Look in Acts chapter 2, verse 5. It says that there were devout men from every nation under heaven in Jerusalem on that day. And then whenever you get to uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, you see 15 people groups listed. We'll look at a map to see where all of these people groups came from. You'll see on this map all the different areas. We see Rome up here at the top left-hand corner. We see Parthia and Elam over here to the far right, and you see all of these words and places and locations. Those are all of the areas that are listed of the people that were in Jerusalem that day, and here's Jerusalem. So literally, people from all over the world was, were there that day to hear the gospel of Jesus proclaimed when the Holy Spirit showed up. I'm reminded of what Revelation chapter 7 says. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we see that in heaven, all peoples from all nations and all tribes and all languages will be in heaven. And it all starts right here on Pentecost Day, whenever the gospel is proclaimed to all people, when the Holy Spirit shows up, and when these apostles preach in languages they never knew. Here are these 15 people groups, and each one of them heard in their own native language the gospel preached because these men and women who didn't know these languages were empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach in other languages and other tongues so that people could come to faith. 
The work of the Holy Spirit always sets us up to serve the Lord, to point towards Jesus, to proclaim boldly the good news of Jesus, setting us, to, uh, us up to be his witnesses. And so as we think about the power of the Holy Spirit and worship him, we realize that he comes upon us as his followers that we might preach the gospel. When I think about all these languages that were spoken that day by men and women that didn't know those languages as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance to preach. As I think about why did God do that? Like these other people probably knew other languages. They, they very well may have known Hebrew or Aramaic or they might have known Greek. And so why is it that God set it up so that all these men and women would preach or tell about Jesus in a way in, in the native language of the people? Because our heart language is what communicates to us best. And there are people, do you know that there are tons of people out in the world today that still don't have a copy of God's word in their native language? I did a little research last night. These numbers are based on some numbers that the Wycliffe Bible Translators came out with in September of 2021. Here's what, here's what I found. There are approximately 7,000 languages in our world today. And of those 7,000 languages, only 700 have the Bible in their complete language. Now, granted, those 700 languages cover a great number of people, but only 700 have the complete Bible. You and I have how many Bibles in our house? How many Bibles do I have in my office? How many Bibles do we have on our phones? And yet there are many people that don't have access to God's Word. Their website said that there are 7.9 billion people in the world, and of that 7.9 billion 5.75 billion have the complete Bible. So that's a pretty good number, but still a good number that don't have the complete Bible. And of those remaining, there are about 2 billion that only have portions of Scripture. But did you know that there are 150 million people around the world, which represents 1,800 languages that, that don't have a single word of the Bible translated in their language? So I would encourage us as we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit around the globe to make the gospel be known to all peoples that God would use people like the Wycliffe Bible translators and others to translate the scripture into the heart language of the people. That may it be like the day of Pentecost again where every person can hear, their, hear the gospel in their language and in their dialect. So we see in this first note this first note on the sermon outline, that the gospel is for the nations. So the question I have for us is, are you playing your role in getting the gospel to the nations? A little side note, you realize, I don't have my study, uh, my notes in front of me on this, but you realize there are many, many different cultures represented in our cities because of uh, students and uh, researchers and faculty on campus at Texas A&M. Did you know that the nations are here at, at our doorstep? Did you know in this room we have people from many different countries uh, that, that were born in different countries? And so the reality is this, we have opportunities to preach the gospel to the nations even here in the city of College Station. Are you and I taking advantage of opportunities to do that very thing? So we see, first of all, that the gospel is to be proclaimed to all people. The next thing says this, the mission is for every believer. In other words, you and I have a role to get the gospel out to all people around the world, to the nations, and the question is, are we living that mission out? Look at Acts chapter 2. 
In Acts chapter 2, you see in verse 16 that Peter, as he gets up to preach, he says, I'm going to quote to you now from the Old Testament, and he begins to quote Joel chapter 2. Joel is a prophet in the Old Testament, and the verses in verses 17 through 21 of Acts chapter 2, you might want to jot this down, come from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And basically, with one small exception that I'll talk about in a little bit, this is a direct quote uh, that we find in Acts from Joel chapter 2. Here is the difference that you will find. Look in verse 17 of Acts chapter 2. It says, and in the last days it shall be that God is going to pour out the Spirit on all flesh. It says, in the last days. But if you were to turn to Joel chapter 2 and read the beginning of, of Joel chapter 2 verse 28, here's what Joel says. He says, it shall come to pass afterward. So why does Peter take the phrase, it shall come to pass afterward, and reword it so that it says, it says um, and in the last days. Why does he say in Acts chapter 2, in the last days? Because Peter was saying, guys, these are the last days. These are the days that Joel is talking about. We're not waiting for some far off day in the future where the last days will arrive. Instead, he's saying these are the last days. The last days are, according to Scripture, according to what Peter says here in many other places, the last days are experienced beginning with the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus into heaven. And as we await his return one of these days, these are the last days. What he's saying is here in your presence, right now, in this moment, on this day of Pentecost, here in Jerusalem, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and following are beginning to be fulfilled. Now, we'll point out, look down in verse uh, 20 and 21, or actually 19, 20 and 21. 19 and 20 begins to talk about the last day, not the last days, plural, but the last day, the day of judgment, because in verse 20 it says, that all of these natural, supernatural things will take place in the heavens and blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun turning to darkness, the moon to blood. It says all of this will take place the day before the day of the Lord comes. So, all this to say, the beginning portion of Joel chapter 2, verse 28, or the beginning of Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, are being fulfilled on this day at Pentecost. And he's pointing to, at some point in the future, the Lord will come back and the rest of it will be fulfilled as well. Now, you may be wondering, why are you walking through all of this? You just said that the second point is the mission is for every believer. What does that have to do with what you just described? Let's see in verse 17 and 18 how it fits. Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, Peter is saying is beginning to be fulfilled right there, right then, in that moment. And what does it say will happen in the last days? Verse 17, it says that the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. That doesn't mean every human being. It means all believers in Jesus Christ will receive the Holy Spirit. And then it begins to describe even further who all these people are. It says sons, daughters, young men, old men. Verse 18, male servants, female servants. In other words, the Holy Spirit is no respecter of person. He will come upon all people. What did I say earlier about the mission or purpose of the coming of the Holy Spirit? 
mission or purpose of the coming of the Holy Spirit is to let his people, let us proclaim the gospel to others. And so in this scenario, I know that the computer's messing up, so if you've got a Bible in front of you, it'd be best. In this scenario, in verses, Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, we see that the very thing is happening where all believers are experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, and all believers are now preaching or telling about Jesus. What does it mean to prophesy? It says that young men will prophesy. It says that, um, well actually it says sons and daughters will prophesy. I'm sorry. Sons and daughters will prophesy. It says male and female servants will prophesy. What does the word prophesy mean? The prophecy here means, to prophesy here means to preach or proclaim or, or to teach um, others about Jesus. It carries with it the idea of speaking forth the truth of God's word under the inspiration and power of the Holy Spirit. So I want us to hear and to see that all of us, whether we are old or whether we are young, whether we are married or whether we're still in school, whether we're single or not, whether we, uh, whether we are a male or female, all of us are to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ. So my question is this, are you telling others about Jesus? If the gospel is to be preached to all nations, and if every believer is to preach that gospel, are you telling others about Jesus? Then let me ask this question. If it says that old people and young people are to tell others about Jesus, if it says Males and females are to tell others about Jesus. Is there anything that you and I are doing that limit or prohibit others that are followers of Jesus from telling others about Jesus? We must not stand in the way of anyone who has the Holy Spirit within them that is telling others about Jesus Christ. As a church, we must be all about discipling people and leading people, and empowering people, and encouraging people, and resourcing people to boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My question is, how are we doing as a church? Living Hope, how are we doing as a church family? Because discipleship is not something that you and I should be a part of and leave it to ourselves. Rather, in our discipleship, we should learn what we learn so that we be a channel to teach and preach and tell others the same thing we're learning. In other words, on Sunday mornings when you come and you read God's Word or we sing God's Word or we go through a Bible study together or we listen to a sermon or when you go to the women's Bible study on Thursday night or when you go to your D group or whenever you go to your Hope group and you're learning these principles and reminded of these principles, don't learn it, absorb it, soak it up and do nothing with it, but go out through the course of the week and be wrung out so that you can tell others the things you're learning as well. Part of application is not just applying to our lives, but application is helping to see others apply God's word to their life as well. You see, we're discipled so that we can disciple others who disciple others who disciple others and on and on and on. That's why as a church we have started using this phrase, be a disciple make disciples, be the church to the glory of God, because we not only should become a disciple ourselves, but we are to make disciples also. The church is to be about the gospel mission, 
of sharing the gospel around the world with all nations, of all peoples, of all tribes, of all languages, and every member must be on that mission as well. So my question is, are you on that mission? Are you telling others about Jesus? I know what some of us may be thinking, but Alan, that's that's hard. Like, where do I begin? What do I say? How do I go about that? How can I go and proclaim Jesus? Look at your sermon notes. The third point says, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to declare what God has done through Jesus. This morning, if we're being reminded that it's our role, it's our privilege, it's our responsibility to go out as believers in Jesus Christ and to tell the nations about Jesus, then we must remember the only way that we can do it is through the power and the strength and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And the reason the Holy Spirit showed up in a radical way, can you imagine being there that day? When the Holy Spirit shows up and, and a wind blows through the house and the whole house is shaking. Have, have you been in a house? I hope you haven't been in a house during a tornado. Thankfully, I've never been in a house during a tornado. But maybe you've been in a house when a really strong wind comes through and you think the house is going to shake down and you hear the wind whistling. It's almost that kind of thing as the Holy Spirit showed up. The reason the Spirit showed up that day was so that they would be empowered to go out and tell others the great works, the mighty works that says in verse 11 of Jesus Christ. You and I can and are empowered to boldly proclaim and to preach and prophesy the name of Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. What is it that they're telling? They're telling everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. Remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it says that it was the beginning of what Jesus had done, to, began to do and to pre- teach, and we're to go out and tell others about that. So here's the deal. These disciples were prepared for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that day because they were in an attitude or a position to receive the Holy Spirit and to hear the word of the Lord to them. Because if you look back at Acts chapter 1, you'll see that they're doing things like obeying God's word. They're living in community or or unity as a church family. They're praying together. They're seeking the Lord together. They're grounded in the truth of Scripture. I mean, here's Peter. He stands up to preach that day, and he points back to Scripture immediately. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. He's grounded in the Scripture. When you and I are grounded in these things and we're ready for the Holy Spirit to come upon us in a way to go out boldly and to proclaim the name of Jesus. Look also at Acts chapter 2 verse 1. It says that when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. I think that the phrase all together in one place is dual purpose. Obviously, he's saying they literally were in the same proximity. They were in the same house. They were in the same room. They were in a room like you and I are in the same room together. But you know that you can be in a room physically with someone and still have great division, right? Like like being together here means not only are they in the same room, but they're together in spirit and in attitude and in unity and that they are seeking the Lord together. Because of that, they are put in a place where they can experience the power of the Holy Spirit. I love what Luke does in verses 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, Luke tries to use human words to describe a miraculous, amazing event, knowing that these, I think, he knows that his words fall short of really describing the picture. 
but it's still pretty impressive the picture that he draws. He uses human words to attempt to describe the divine power or the act of the Holy Spirit showing up. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says suddenly, so it was unexpected. Like they knew the Spirit was coming at some point, but they didn't know he was coming that day, and suddenly the Spirit shows up. And then he begins to describe, he uses metaphors and similes to describe the scene, and he says that there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And then he begins to describe the Spirit showing up tangibly. And he says that that when the Spirit showed up, there were divided tongues as of fire that were placed on each of the believers. Amazing picture. The two key phrases that he uses or word pictures is a wind and fire. Both of these point out to God. What we must understand is the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. He is the third person of the Trinity of God. And and therefore, he is God himself. And describing him as as a wind and a fire that showed up that day points back to God. The word wind in the Hebrew is ruach. And in Greek, it is pneuma. Both the word ruach and Numa in Greek and Hebrew have some similarities to them. They can be used to describe the simple thing of wind, like step out in the front yard and feel the wind blow by. They also can be used to describe breath or to breathe. It also can be used to describe spirit. So whenever the spirit is described as a powerful, mighty, disrupting wind that blows through the house, then he's pointing out to the great sovereignty and power of God himself, the Spirit of God, the wind of God, the breath of God. I know the last couple weeks I've referenced 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Just remember that 2 Timothy 3, 16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God, breathed out by God. In the Greek, breathed out by God is one word. It's a compound word. And the word is, 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 um, is, is God, uh, theos, and breath, which is pneuma, which is the spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit inspired the word of God. It's the very breath of God. Look down in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. It describes that what took place that day caused the followers of Jesus to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? If you grew up charismatic, some things may come to your mind. If you grew up Baptist, you may even think, Spirit, what's the Spirit of God? I'm joking, but it's almost that kind of way among some Baptists. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? This past couple of weeks, I've been reading some in the book of Luke, and I don't know if you remember reading the birth account of Jesus in the book of Luke, but it also walks through uh, the birth account of, of John the Baptist. It also, I was reading this morning, walks through where Jesus and his parents, or Jesus doesn't bring himself to the temple, but Jesus' parents bring him to the temple when he's a week old to be presented in the temple, and, and it talks about Simeon there. In all those scenarios, it talks about Simeon and, and Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah all being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
In every one of those circumstances, when they are filled with the Holy Spirit, they are filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to proclaim the glory of God. In almost every scenario, when the phrase filled with the Holy Spirit shows up in the book of Acts, in almost every scenario, it's then that someone stands up and boldly preaches the gospel message. In other places, like when the first deacons were selected, it said that Stephen was filled with the Spirit. Almost every single time the phrase filled with the Spirit shows up in Scripture, it's doing one of uh, it, I'm saying it, the phrase, not the Holy Spirit. He is doing one of two things, and actually they're the same thing. Preparing someone for a specific work of service and ministry, and or preparing someone to boldly preach the gospel. So why does the Holy Spirit show up in Acts chapter 2? Because Jesus says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that you will be my witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you. When the Spirit fills us up, there's nothing else to do other than to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That whenever God prepares his people for a special role or a special task, he gives them the Holy Spirit. Don't get me wrong, every one of us that believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. But to be filled with the Holy Spirit means that we are living out what God's mission is for us, which is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, here in our text, in Acts chapter 2, it says in verse 4 that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then immediately we see them standing up and boldly proclaiming because it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then it describes who all they spoke to. And then look down in verse 11, it says that what they were boldly proclaiming is in verse 11, telling in their, these pre, uh, several tongues, the mighty works of God. It says the Holy Spirit showed up, and then he gave them utterance, and they preached. My question for all of us is this. When the Holy Spirit shows up in your life and he prompts you to proclaim Jesus, do you do that? A couple weeks ago, I was eating breakfast with uh, a friend here from the church. We were over, over at IHOP, Howard's favorite place to eat. And while we were there, at the end of our time together, the server came up and was chatting with us. And my friend said, hey, we're about to pray. Is there something we can pray for you about? Holy Spirit prompted him. He spoke up and asked if we could pray for her. Do you and I take advantage of those opportunities when we're at the store, when we're in the restaurant, when we're with friends, when we're at the ball game, when we're at home, when we're in our hope group, when we're in a D group, whenever we're in a Bible study class, everywhere we go, when the Holy Spirit prompts us and gives us utterance, do we then boldly proclaim the name of Jesus? I'd encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you in a way that you would have no other option but to stand up and proclaim the name of Jesus. As I think about the disciples that day, there's no way they knew the Spirit was going to show up that day. So technically, they had not mentally prepared to preach that day. However, when the Spirit showed up, they were truly prepared and they did it, right? Now, we all know Peter. He liked to talk. 
He probably in that regard was a lot like me. He liked to talk a bunch. He would always step out and be bold and self tell things how they are. Sometimes he was right and sometimes he was wrong. But in this scenario, Peter had not sat up the night before and wrote out his sermon about what he was going to preach on the day of Pentecost. No, when the Spirit moved and prompted him to speak, he boldly stood up and began to preach God's Word because he was ready in season and out of season. The question is, for you and I, are we constantly ready to preach the gospel to those around us? In this scenario, look down in verses 6 through 8. The result of the preaching left some people with all kinds of emotions. Some were amazed, some were perplexed, some even mocked them. And you see in verses 6 through 8, some of them said, they're drunk. That's why they're acting this way. They're gibberish speaking. They don't know what they're doing. They're drunk. Peter stands up and he says, guys, y'all got this entirely wrong. Look in verse 14 and verse 15. He says, these people aren't drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. It's before breakfast, and, and it's the hour of prayer. These guys are not drunk. These guys are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're not being controlled or, or tossed to and fro by something like alcohol. They are being radically charged by the works of the Holy Spirit. When is the last time someone thought you were drunk or crazy or out of your mind and no it wasn't any of the above you were just filled with the spirit of god if we're not careful we in our baptist world will walk through life and ignore the power and the scope and the work and the ministry and the emboldenedness that we get from the Holy Spirit by ignoring the Holy Spirit and almost acting as if he has nothing to do with anything. In this scenario, they were under the influence and control of the Spirit. When's the last time you and I were under his control? Look at Ephesians chapter 5. These, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 20. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as the unwise do, making the best of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody of the Lord with your heart. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll boldly proclaim Jesus Christ, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Our lives should be under the control and influence of the Holy Spirit. And all too often we walk through life ignoring him altogether. You know why we walk through life ignoring the Holy Spirit? Because we have seen the Holy Spirit be manipulated and used by some people, and so therefore we avoid him altogether. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, so let me keep moving, and we'll come back to that thought. Let's look real quickly at the last note. It says, everyone who calls on Jesus will be saved. That's found in verse 21. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 21 says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That, that same verse is referenced in Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 14, here's what Paul says. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching or teaching or proclaiming or prophesying about Jesus? You and I can have confidence that when we tell others about Jesus, that God in his sovereignty will help them see that they have a choice to make. Will they accept Jesus as their Savior or will they ignore him? And we can have confidence that every single one of those who turn to Jesus for salvation, they shall be saved. So what does it mean to call the name of the Lord Jesus? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to say the gospel? What, what do we mean by all of that? Over in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we see that there's only one name under heaven by which men and women may be saved, and that's the name of Jesus. In our world, we kind of live in a diversified world that seems to think that anything goes, right? Like, surely there are multiple paths to God. Surely it's okay for me to have my thought and you to have your thought. If it works for you and it works for me, then whatever is fine. No, there's no, no truth to that whatsoever. There's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus. So this morning, I would ask you, have you ever trusted in Jesus? Some of us have called on the name of our church family. Some of us have called on the name of a baptism that we had. Some of us call on the name of perfect attendance at church. Some of us call on the name of I'm a good little boy and a good little girl. No, the reality is salvation comes under the name of Jesus and him alone in faith in Jesus and him alone and repentance of our sins. The Bible is clear that all of us are sinners and that our sins separate us from a good, holy, perfect God. That our sins are offensive to God. Whatever those sins may be, be they big or be they little, they are all an affront to God and kind of sticking our nose, thumbing, thumbing our nose at God, if you will. And because of our sins, we are separated from God himself. But the good news is that God sent his son Jesus that he would live and die and that he would take on himself the punishment that we deserve, that he would die on a cross in order that we might trust in him for our sins to be forgiven. You see, there's nothing that you and I can do to earn God's grace. It's kind of the very definition of grace. It's not what you do, it's what God freely gives. Rather, we must trust and place our faith in in Jesus Christ, repenting of our sins and turning to him for salvation. So my question is, in Acts chapter 2, verse 21, it says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called on the name of Jesus? I said a moment ago that when it comes to the Holy Spirit, there's almost two extremes and people don't normally fall in the middle. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, 
there are some who just go hog wild and crazy and, and everything is about the Holy Spirit and people are running the pews and jumping up and down and swinging from the rafters and I'm not making fun, I'm just saying the reality is that, 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 that there's an overemphasis on the Holy Spirit. It's almost like Jesus himself is forgotten and it's all about the, the great and power of the Holy Spirit and, and Jesus is almost tossed to the side. There's speaking in tongues and no, no, no uh, translation, no interpretation. There, there's there's uh, almost uh, going on our own feelings instead of what God's word has to say. And we've probably all seen a, a misuse of the Holy Spirit. It becomes a bit showy and little content of God's word to it. It ends up elevating the person who is a part of that and not Jesus. And then there's something that's just as bad, and there's a total ignoring of the Holy Spirit. It's like, okay, I've seen that circus before. I don't want that circus, and so I'm going to be prim and proper and reverent in church, and I'm not going to ever smile because we're not supposed to be happy when we come to church. And, and there can be a, an ignoring of the role of the Holy Spirit. Both of these options are horrible options. And in the Baptist world, we gravitate that way almost exclusively. The reality is that we need to understand what the Holy Spirit does and how he empowers us to live for God, to live out this mission he's called us to, and to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. Whenever we realize the role of the Holy Spirit, then we know that there's joy in the Lord. Where does joy come from? Not our circumstances. It comes from the Lord. Well, if our circumstances are cruddy, then the internal with the Holy Spirit living inside of us is where the joy bubbles up. I'm not saying you have to be smiling all the time. That looks fake, okay? But we occasionally should look like the joy of the Lord is just bursting from the seams from us. I realize all of us think differently, like what I mean by that is like when we think, when we are, are concentrating on something. But I'll, I'll tell you this, there are a few faces out here on Sunday mornings I can look at and almost always there's a smile and there's a bunch of faces I look at and there's always a straight face or maybe even a down face. I'm just saying let us get excited to be in the house of the Lord because there is joy to be had in him and when others see that joy in us then that is one way to begin to proclaim the gospel that then gets us the ability to open our mouth and not just smile and they'll know we're Christians. No, we're happy because God is at work within us and the Holy Spirit brings us that joy and then he gives us that boldness to step out and tell them specifically about Jesus Christ. Preach, I like that. Let us preach the good news of Jesus Christ knowing we cannot do it in our own power and our own strength but through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So my question is this. As we walk through Acts chapter 2, did you go, yeah, I've heard that story before. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Like, I don't even know how that happened. Like, how do they speak all these different languages? That's kind of awesome. But, you know, that was 2,000 years ago. God probably wouldn't do something like that again today. So that's kind of a cool story to read. And, oh, yeah, yeah, Paul, get, uh, Peter, sorry, we don't have Paul yet. Peter uh, stands up and he points back to the Old Testament. That's kind of a neat story to read. Okay, it's time to dismiss. No, the reality is the Holy Spirit showed up that day. 
When people saw the work of the Holy Spirit, they reacted to it. They had to respond to it. When is the last time that the Holy Spirit was on fire in this place in such a way that the neighbors and our community and the people in your lives saw the work of the Holy Spirit. They didn't know what was going on. Perhaps they were amazed. Perhaps they were perplexed. Perhaps they were mocking. But the work of God was so real and evident and tangible that there was no excusing it or overlooking it. Guys and gals, it's time that we as a church family plead with God that the Holy Spirit would rain down on this place, not this place, these four walls, but this church family so that we can boldly proclaim the name of Jesus so that this community will never be the same, not because of us, but because of Jesus Christ. This morning, will you say yes to the Spirit of God? For some of you, you need to say yes to salvation as the Spirit of God prompts you today. For others of you, you need to come and pray at this altar. You need to confess sin that is keeping the Holy Spirit's power at bay in your life because you're not being controlled by the Spirit, you're being controlled by the flesh. And some of us need to just say, you know what, God? I realize that in times of worship, whether they be private worship, whether they be corporate worship on Sunday mornings, whether it be worship as I go throughout my work day, but as I worship you, Lord, may the joy of the Lord radiate from me as I genuinely worship you and proclaim the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you do your work in us? Let's pray.